The loneliness one dare not sound and would as soon surmise, as in its grave go plumbing to ascertain the size. The loneliness whose worst alarm is lest itself should see and perish from before itself for just a scrutiny. The horror not to be surveyed, but skirted in the dark, with consciousness suspended and being under lock. I fear me this is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors, illuminate or seal. Hello and welcome to Loneliness and You, the podcast in which we hope to illuminate rather than seal the experience of loneliness and the question of whether it is indeed the maker of the soul. I'm your host, Axel Seaman. In each episode, I have a conversation with someone who has something to say about loneliness from an academic, artistic, or indeed any other perspective. My guest today is Matthew Ratcliffe. Matthew, could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, yes, hello, Axel, and thank you for inviting me. So I'm Matthew Ratcliffe, and I'm Professor of Philosophy at the University of York in the UK. And my research is concerned primarily with phenomenology and with the interaction between phenomenology, interdisciplinary emotion theory, and philosophy of psychiatry. And what I've really tried to do over the years, more than anything else, is try to make sense of forms of experience that people struggle to express and struggle to understand experiences associated with depression and grief, for example. And at the moment, um, I'm heading uh, an externally funded project on the nature of grief. It's funded by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council. And again, what we're trying to do with that is try to articulate aspects of experience that people find not just distressing, but bewildering and hard or even impossible to convey to others. And, and in the process, also try to cast light on the nature of human experience more generally. Thank you very much. Loneliness is certainly a bewildering aspect of human experience. And I would imagine that lots of people find it hard to articulate. Somebody who has articulated it is Emily Dickinson in the poem that we just heard. And we always start with a little conversation about the poem. How did it strike you? Well, I, I guess I'm not alone in not knowing exactly what to make of that poem. But there are certainly some themes that resonate here and provoke a few philosophical thoughts. So loneliness one dare not sound. It conveys a picture of loneliness as something profound and pervasive that lurks in the background, something that one can evade or sort of explicitly deny, but not quite escape. So one can, if you like, be aware of loneliness, but in a way that allows one to um, not focus explicitly on it or, 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 or to somehow avoid its nature. So the, the horror of evade. It also suggests to me that loneliness for Dickinson isn't some kind of contingent predicament that one might drift into or wriggle out of but rather it seems to be something integral to the, the structure of consciousness, to, the, to, to, to what we are. Towards the end, she refers to the maker of the soul. There are sort of perhaps also some interesting themes about the epistemic dimensions of loneliness here. 
its cabins and its corridors. There's something complicated, disorienting about it. Perhaps there are connotations of being lost here. But also the poem ends with illuminate or seal. Is loneliness something that seals us off from certain insights into our nature and into other things? Or does loneliness have the power to illuminate somehow? That's also something we can ask as philosophers studying loneliness. And I think throughout there's a sense of loneliness as something that one can be haunted by, always there in the background, just lurking as it were. And that's an aspect of emotional experience more generally that I think has been neglected, how it can be haunted in certain ways by emotions. So I've, I've no idea whether that uh, actually does relate to, to, to the poem or not, but perhaps it does. <laughs> it doesn't really have to, re you know, we're not Dickinson scholars here. Um, I'm not either. I, I chose this poem um, because I also, I find it bewildering and I find it appealing, but also really, really unclear. There's, you know, lots that I just don't understand um, in this poem. So I thought, you know, it would be a fun idea to hear, you know, what, what other people think about it. So, you know, there's certainly no claim to um, or no expectation of scholarship on the Dickinson front here. Okay, that's a relief because I'm certainly not a Dickinson scholar. No, neither am I. You just said you just picked up on something that I also um, get from the poem very strongly, that somehow loneliness, you, you just said, it's part of the integral structure of, of consciousness. It's not something that, you know, has an intentional structure, perhaps as, you know, philosophers would put it. It's not really sort of necessarily about something, perhaps is, you know, what I get from the poem. But um, that's, of course, also something that you are interested in, in your own work. Right. So, uh, you know, this idea of emotions and feelings that, you know, structure awareness uh, somehow rather than mm. having. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Um, yes. Well, I mean, some, some years ago, I coined the term existential feeling or at least um, applied that term to describe a specific kind of phenomenon. And I think it was back in 2005 I first started writing about this. And I was struck actually doing a, a web search for something at the time. Uh, the, the, the number of feelings that people express and the number of ways in which people describe these feelings where they're, they're not on established lists of emotions and the like. Um, rather, these are sort of feelings that constitute a changeable sense of reality and belonging. And people actually talk about these, these things quite a lot, but struggle to describe them. Feelings of homeliness, belonging, being lost. Uh, a sense of unreality, a sense of unreality, a warming sense of familiarity, and so on. And when you look into this, you start to see this, this huge list of terms and longer descriptions that people use. So I've, I've spent, I, I've done a lot of work just trying to analyze these phenomena. So felt phenomena that aren't directed at something specific, uh, they're not just bodily, they're not just directed at the world, rather they're, if you like, ways of finding oneself in, in the world. And what I try to do is illuminate this aspect of experience by engaging with various forms of anomalous experience that are described in psychiatric contexts. It seems that, you know, what you're doing there, sort of that's a really hard job for a philosopher, isn't it? If you're precisely, you know, trying to illuminate something that is unsaid, right? And that, that you know, sort of re resists clear, obvious propositional expression. 
so how do you go about that? How do you do that? Um, and I'm, I'm not so sure it's unsaid. Um, you know, that there isn't a nice uh, sort of tidy taxonomy for engaging with these phenomena. And really, they've been neglected by philosophers and uh, in, indeed in other academic disciplines as well. But I think in everyday life, in literature, and certainly in the first-person accounts of those with diagnoses of, for example, depression, uh, there are detailed and highly illuminating descriptions of this aspect of experience. Furthermore, one thing I find remarkable is that even though people will say that they really struggle to describe this, they can't put it into words, uh, the descriptions that follow are then remarkably uh, revealing. So, I mean, what, what I've done is draw on a range of sources and try to bring them together in various ways. So uh, themes in the phenomenological tradition and associated methods, uh, work in contemporary emotion theory, uh, themes in literature, but really more than anything else by engaging with the first person accounts of those with diagnoses such as schizophrenia and depression or those who've experienced profound forms of trauma. And just from all of that, I've tried over a number of years to piece all this together. And it didn't really culminate in a single account. It's something I keep rethinking and elaborating. For example, over the years, my conception of this aspect of experience has become more and more dynamic. I think of it more as more and more in terms of a cohesive sense of the unfolding of possibilities over time and the ways in which this unfolding can be uh, altered and disrupted. And one of the senses in which this sense of possibilities um, can be disrupted is, um, as you have you know, argued, in experiences such as, you know, grief and loneliness. So perhaps, you know, it'd be interesting if you um, told us a little bit more about that aspect of your research. I'm not, not so much in relation to grief, actually. I mean, if I can nudge the subject slightly. Sure. More, um, I, I found it more straightforward to offer an account of depression in terms of changes in existential feeling and also to analyse existential feeling in so doing. So what people with depression diagnoses often describe is a change, if you like, in, in the kinds of possibilities that one is able to experience, uh, imagine, anticipate, contemplate. So, you know, at the moment I'm sitting in my office at home and certain things appear salient and significant in a range of different ways. The glass of water that I, I can take to drink from if my mouth dries up, a collection of papers that I was dealing with earlier, and most of all the microphone in front of me and an awareness of talking with another human being. Um, so the situation is configured as significant in these various ways. And of course, it could change dramatically if one of my children bursts in. Things are going to be significant in different ways. But what people with depression diagnoses so often describe is a lack of access to certain kinds of possibilities. In the most extreme case, the possibility of anything ever being different in any consequential way, as if there's no escape from the depression, no escape from this predicament that one is in at the moment. And this can amount to an overwhelming sense of being irrevocably cut off from other people. And just relating this to loneliness, I first started thinking about loneliness back then. And what really resonated with me and still does is 
quotation from the Dutch phenomenologist and psychiatrist J.H. Vandenberg, who writes that loneliness is the nucleus of psychiatry. And I think this is very right when it comes to depression. Experiences of depression are hugely diverse and are described in many different ways. But what you find time and time again is a sense of, a pervasive sense of estrangement from other people, which might take the more specific form of uh, distrust, guilt, uh, feeling as though one is a burden or just curious sense of detachment, as if one is in some kind of bubble looking out on a social world where others are able to go about their business together. So it was really in that context I started thinking about loneliness. Grief, the reason I hesitated there in relation to existential feeling, uh, is just that grief is much more difficult to describe in terms of existential feeling, and I didn't want to give you a, a 20 minutes to little cry on it. And this is partly because grief needs to be thought of in, in, in very dynamic terms. Grief is a multifaceted, complicated process, which is embedded in interpersonal interactions within a wider social world and a cultural context. You know, that's not to say that depression um, is, is, is not dynamic as well, but there's, there's so much uh, involved in grief that existential feeling would, would only be a part of it. And there are various different accounts of existential feeling one needs to offer in relation to grief. That, that said, again, with grief, there is a really strong connection with loneliness. So people describe loneliness in the context of bereavement in a range of ways with different emphases. Obviously, losing a person who one may have spent much of one's life with can involve an all-encompassing uh, sense of loss and privation of a certain form of interpersonal companionship. But not being with that person can also cut one off from other interpersonal relationships. It was us who used to go out with them for dinner, or we used to do this with, with, those, with, with, with those people every week. Um, so the, the disruption of one's social relations can also be a focus of loneliness. People also struggle to describe bereavement. There's often a sense that others don't understand. They've got no idea what you're going through. Um, again, as though the, the world is just drifting by somewhere else. Um, and as I've heard a lot of people say, as if, as if one is trapped in one's own little grief bubble. <laughs> so both grief and depression relate very closely to loneliness. In the case of grief, though, the, there are so many different emphases to one's loneliness and aspects. And I think the relationship is quite challenging to to conceptualize. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Um, one thought you have recently um, pursued, interestingly, in connection with your thinking about loneliness, is that um, it has to do with uh, space. It doesn't necessarily just have to do with other people or even with the relationship between oneself and other people but somehow also with the environment in which one acts with these people. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I find that a really intriguing thought. Yes. I mean, again, this relates to the, the work I did on existential feeling, where there, was, there is an emphasis on how we experience possibilities as integral to our surroundings. So uh, the, the, the objects, the situations around us embody various significant possibilities. They matter to us in different ways. 
So I started to think about loneliness in those terms. And again, I really took my lead from Vandenberg. So there's, there's a wonderful passage in his book, A Different where he describes the experience of loneliness that one has, having expected a dinner guest, really looked forward to their visit, set up the table, opened the wine, put out the two glasses, and then they phone to say that they're not coming. And Vandenberg says, well, how you experience that dinner table and those glasses of wine then changes. One's loneliness is embodied in one's surroundings, in the appearance of that bottle, in the appearance of those glasses. And so I started to think about loneliness in those terms, um, as partly at least, a way of experiencing possibilities in one's surroundings. And I think it's not just about the lack of something or the absence of something or the loss of something. It's very much a matter of feeling blocked, excluded, estranged, prevented. There's a sense, if you like, of being unable to access certain social possibilities due to some other conditions specific to oneself. So after the breakup of a relationship, for example, it's not just that person that you can no longer feel connected to. In the absence of that relationship, the whole, uh, the way in which one can navigate the social world may have changed. Various possibilities are no longer open. One can't access the same social relations, do the same things in the same way. So you, you have a sense of something specific to you. It could be the breakup of a relationship. It could be a bereavement. It could be the fact that someone's not coming to dinner having lost one's job, moved to a new country, one might experience some kind of shortcoming in oneself, a sense of inadequacy, perhaps a pervasive feeling of shame. But because of something specific to you, you're impeded from engaging with, with certain possibilities. And I think what really characterizes loneliness is the sense that those possibilities remain for other people. Loneliness includes a, a range of very different experiences. But a common theme seems to be, I suppose, being left out, shut out, excluded, unable to participate. So what you have is an experience of those possibilities as there, but not for you. They can all do this. They can go to the pub and laugh together. Um, and most importantly, they can do things that offer up the possibility of intimate forms of interpersonal connection, friendship, romantic attachments, and so forth. So, so I think it's, it's very much an experience of associating one's surroundings and one's relationship with one's surroundings in terms of being cut off, um, unable to access something. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a general thought, but I realize it needs to be analyzed in much more detail and there are various issues that need to be addressed to make that sound plausible. Well, it, it, it does certainly have, you know, intuitive um, plausibility at least. It leads to the observation that if you're saying he is on the right track, you know, that gives us a very different um, conception of what loneliness is than the standard definitions that, you know, you read in much of the applied psychological literature or also, you know, in... in, in uh, public, you know, reference works where really, you know, it's it's always about or mostly about loneliness is something like the felt absence of desired social connections. Um, so in these definitions, it's predominantly about other people and their absence. And um, when, if I understand you correctly, 
if you what you're saying is on the right track, then it's almost about a view of seeing oneself in relation to other people. So there's an important self-relation involved. Is that right? Yes, it would be relational. It's like they, perhaps not in all instances, but in many, you know, that they have these possibilities that I do not. I mean, the kind of um, definition that you've just offered, I think, is consistent with what I'm suggesting. Um, I just think it, it, it only just scratches the surface. And the other problem with definitions like that is that they're compatible with a host of different emotional experiences. And what they're referring to is something that's neither necessary nor sufficient for most of those experiences we describe in terms of loneliness. So I do think we need something a bit more detailed and discerning. A, a kind of phenomenological approach can help with that. One of the reasons why loneliness research is, you know, so interesting to so many people at the moment is because there seems to be a pervasive sense of feeling alone uh, that is reported all over, you know, in different age groups and different populations and different contexts. And some of the reasons for that, you know, maybe plain um, because, you know, we live in an ever more digitized age where we, you know, have fewer social relations than we used to, or, you know, at least are at risk of, of being that being the case. Do you have any other views or any explanation of why there is this loneliness epidemic as it is often presented in the public media at the moment? Or do you even think there is one? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm inclined to say I should know my place and try to develop a phenomenological account of loneliness where we actually have a grasp of, of, of what we're referring to. I think one of the problems in talking about epidemics of loneliness is that this kind of conceptual philosophical work really needs to be done. Otherwise, our definition of loneliness could slide around all over the place. And it's plausible to, to suggest that others have that definitions of loneliness are highly variable even now. And historically, they vary considerably. I, I, I'm wary of big claims about loneliness epidemics uh, and, until we sort of do a better job of pinning down the phenomenon. And of course, there are various things one could refer to, such as um, you know increasing reliance on communicative technologies as opposed to face-to-face -face communication. Then again, one could equally argue that some of these new forms of communication can serve to mitigate loneliness rather than just cause it or exacerbate it. I mean, certainly circumstances that did lead to loneliness for many people arose during the pandemic, though. I think that's fairly uncontroversial, but um, if you impose radical social restrictions on substantial populations for prolonged periods, some didn't experience loneliness, some were emancipated from awkward social interactions uh, through less effortful online communication. But many people found this profoundly difficult and experienced forms of loneliness uh, that they, they had not had before. So you said earlier that, um, told us that, you know, you work, you take extremely serious um, first person, seriously first person accounts in your phenomenological work. One could think that that opens up a hope that the kind of work you do lends itself to the de development of um, remedial measures, perhaps of a therapeutic kind. So that you know the work that you do whether or not there's a there's a loneliness epidemic um has got a use if you want a concrete application in 
eventually, you know, helping improve the condition of those who suffer from loneliness. Would you have that hope? Um, is, is, is that something you're aiming for? Um, I mean, yes, in principle, I do. You know, I write for principally academic audience, but I always try to write in a way that is accessible uh, to, to others, um, to clinicians, therapists, perhaps, but also to, to people in a wide range of situations who experience loneliness. I mean, I don't, it's sometimes a long path from a phenomenal analysis to actually doing something useful for people. But certainly the, the work I've done on depression and also on grief, people have contacted me and said they have found it helpful, that it can help with self-understanding and it's also helped others to better appreciate what they're going through. And I know it's also informed the work of clinicians. So it's something I'm, I'm, I'm always aware of in, in the background. And I, I also like um, collaborating with and sometimes writing with clinical psychologists and psychiatrists and others um, with, with this kind of thing in mind. We have time, unfortunately, only for one more question. And I always end on, or I sometimes end on a sort of slightly, you know, more personal note, which you which you perfectly, you know, allowed not to take up. But something that interests, fascinates me about loneliness research is, so this is something, you know, this is such a widespread condition. Um, almost everybody will have experienced some aspect of that in their lives. And that makes it a really, you know, um, funny topic to research in a way, because in a way, you know, you might think that, well, you know, by doing this work, doing this research, I'm also then investigating a part of myself, my own experience in a much more direct way than if we were thinking about, I don't know, causation in psychology or whatever else, you know, philosophers think about. Does that inform your thinking about loneliness in any way? Does that play any role? Or do you, do you say, no, that really doesn't have any particular bearing for me when I do my work? I've never written about my own experience and the accounts I've offered have never been kind of surreptitiously about my own experience either. But what I've tried to do is draw on first-person experience as a kind of clue to help me to get into this, uh, problems and issues. And then by engaging, obviously, with a range of other sources to try and say something that does generalise to say something that recognises both the diversity of people's experiences and the fact that many of them will be quite unlike my own, but, but also to try and make generalisations, to try and identify structures of experience that are common despite all this diversity. But I think when it, when it comes to loneliness, one of the first things that strikes me if I am using myself as a clue is that experiences of loneliness are, are, are quite diverse. So. You can think of the, the, the loneliness of a child who's not very good at football and gets picked last and always feels excluded and sits on the sidelines. That, that was autobiographical, by the way. Or something fairly superficial, like walking around the airport round and round as one's Ryanair flight is delayed further and further and further, feeling utterly estranged from everyone and rather, rather lost. Um, or the, the loneliness that can come with moving to a different country and feeling profoundly isolated from others. The, the, the loneliness I've experienced following uh, bereavement, the, the loneliness of face during very difficult points in life. There's so much here. And also, if you try and reflect upon the emotional qualities of loneliness, there are so many different things going on. And it's tempting just to go radically pluralistic. 
But I, I, I'm not inclined to do that. What I'm inclined to do is suggest that loneliness isn't a specific emotion that varies in intensity. Rather, loneliness is a kind of experiential structure that can be common to a range of otherwise quite different emotional states. So you could talk about the loneliness of grief, the loneliness of being bored stiff at Edinburgh Airport. Um, even though we don't talk in these terms, you could also talk about the, the loneliness of distrust. I think that would make sense. And loneliness can have different qualities, you know, a sad loneliness, an angry loneliness. So we, we, we need to think of it as, as a kind of structure that's common to a range of different experiences. And I suppose just looking on the various experience, experiences I have had that I would classify as loneliness, they, they would be, they would push me in that direction, I think. Yeah, so I certainly share um, the loneliness um, of the football player who's not very good in school. I certainly had that experience as well. Um, you might know that there's actually a, a book in German, I forget now exactly what it's called, um, Die Einsamkeit des Tormanns beim Elfmeterschießen, The Loneliness of the Goalie at Penalties. <laughs> there's even a book about that. Um, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much. That was a wonderful conversation. Um, I've learned a lot and I'm looking very much forward to um, hearing more, reading more um, about where you're going with this work in the future. Thank you very much. It's been very nice to talk with you. My guest today was Matthew Ratcliffe. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of York in the UK. His book, Grief Worlds, a study on emotional experience, has just appeared with MIT Press. Thanks for listening to Loneliness and You, a podcast on the research and experience of loneliness.